Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later in the hour, IPR's Barney Sherman will share some of his favorite classical music releases of 2022. But first, on October 5th, 1923, the night before the second varsity college football game of his life, Jack Trice wrote, The honor of my race, family, and self are at stake. Everyone is expecting me to do big things. I will. Trice, the first black athlete at what was then Iowa State College, died of injuries sustained on the field in that game. He's also the first and still only black man to have a major university stadium named after him. And getting his name on the stadium was the result of a 20-plus year campaign led by students who were repeatedly rebuffed by ISU's administration and the Board of Regents. Today, I'll talk about Jack Trice's life and legacy with Dr. Jonathan Gelber, author of The Idealist, Jack Trice and the Battle for a Forgotten Football Legacy. Gelber is an orthopedic surgeon and author. He is on the line with me now. Jonathan, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me on. Well, thank you so much for being here. And you uh, don't have a long history with the state of Iowa. I'm curious, how did this story come to your attention? Well, I came across Jack's story when I was researching a previous book that I had. I had written a book about how sports injuries and tragedies affected society as a whole. And I came across Jack's story and the tragedy of his untimely death. And while it didn't fit into that book, I thought that the fact that he not only broke racial barriers as the first African-American athlete at Iowa State, but not that also his letter that he had written the night before he unfortunately would die from tragic injuries, that letter reached out across generations and actually inspired students in the 1970s and the 1980s and the 1990s to have the stadium named after Jack. So it was not only Jack's life as a a barrier breaker, but also the second phase of that story was the inspiration of the students to name the stadium after Jack. So I thought it was a very interesting arc that not only was his life important, but even the letter that he wrote reached across generations. And uh, Jonathan, we're having a little bit of trouble with your connection, so I'm going to have you switch over to your telephone, and I think we'll be able to hear you a little more clearly there. Um, The letter that Jack Trice wrote, it feels like after reading your book, it's that letter that made the difference between him being forgotten and him being remembered. Do you feel that's true? That is what we have as okay jonathan let's see um we're having a a little bit of trouble hearing you uh i hope you're on the telephone now can you hear me yep i can hear you now perfect all right so uh, i'll I'll just repeat again that it feels like that letter that extraordinarily letter that he wrote the night before the final and only second varsity football game of his career um, is the difference between him being forgotten and him being remembered. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I think that is the the inspiration because, yeah, he unfortunately he was remembered uh, in the time that he lived. I mean, they, they had a funeral for him. They stopped classes. 
And that letter was memorialized on a plaque inside the old Iowa State Gymnasium. So the students at that time, they, they wanted to honor him. They thought he deserved something uh, memorializing him, memorializing who he was and what he did. But it did get forgotten. And in fact, it was the rediscovery of that plaque by an academic tutor and subsequently an English class looking into who Jack Trice was, was what inspired the movement. So without that letter, we may not have known about him because that plaque on the wall wouldn't have existed. So I think it is that letter which has inspired people. And it inspires people in many different ways. And most notably, it's, it's African-Americans who play sports, who realize that there's more than just their honor at stake on the field, like Jack said. It is the race, his family, and his self in that order whose honor is at stake on that field. And so athletic directors who know Jack's story also have felt that way. Coaches in NFL football have felt that way. And so I think it speaks to a lot of people who have similar circumstances than Jack. And it is 100 years later, and still they can relate to what Jack was feeling at that time. We will talk more about the student movement a little later on in the show, but you obviously did an incredible amount of research to dig deep into Jack Trice's family and his family history. All four of his grandparents were born into slavery, and Jack's father was really a remarkable man. Tell me a little bit about him. Yeah, I mean, Jack's story is really the story of the origins of African Americans after the Civil War. So his his grandparents were slaves, um, and they, his dad was born right around the time of emancipation. And so his, his father grew up and became a Buffalo soldier. And as a Buffalo soldier, he fought you know, for his country. It was a country that had enslaved his parents. Right, and yet west. he still wanted to support the folks, you know, the, the country itself, the idea of America. So he became a Buffalo soldier. And after that, he left and he had met a man who was creating a small town in Hiram, Ohio, and it was part of a college there. It was going to be a a religious school and university. And so he moved to the small town in Ohio where they were likely the only people of color there. There was maybe one other immigrant, but Jack was the only young black boy in the school. And so even at an early age, you know, his father was instilling on him the importance of hard work and and living this life as, as a different person, as the only black face in the crowd. Well, and and Jack's father was clearly driven to better himself and to take advantage of some of the opportunities that freedom allowed him. He had never been to school, and he went to school, grade school, as an adult. Yeah, it's, it's a very funny story because, yeah, everybody in town knew him. He would walk children to school, to church. He eventually bought his own farm. And so he was a hard worker. He was a community member. Um, and as you mentioned, he would actually go to grade school so he could learn to read. And he would play recess with the school kids. He would reach out his arms and the little kids would use his arms as swings. So it's quite an interesting story when you think about his father alone, let alone what Jack did. Yeah, which uh, it just incredibly brave uh, is is what I think of when I think about an adult man doing what he did to try to to learn as much as he could. But unfortunately, he didn't live long. No, he did. He died of of kidney disease, which is predominant in African-American communities, unfortunately. And so his father died at an early age. And that was one of the reasons his mother, who was trying to raise Jack on her own and working in a local factory, decided to send him 
to live with his cousins in a larger African-American community in Cleveland. And so that's how Jack ended up in Cleveland, where he played high school football and became a high school football star. And it was his coach and his teammates, his best friend, who went to Iowa State, and he followed them to play football. So had Jack not gone to Cleveland, he probably wouldn't have played football and wouldn't have ended up in Iowa. Right. Well, and so going to Cleveland to be part of a larger African-American community, uh, he was, although he was still the only black athlete on his high school team. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, there was one other boy of color um, on his second year, but the first year, Jack was the only African-American. And there were still very few African-Americans in the school. It was a technical university, um, and it was a very well-known school. But even among that school in Cleveland, there were not many African-Americans. So Jack was known for his smile. They used to say in his high school yearbook that his smile and his tackle comforted everybody because they knew <laughs> what he would do on the field. But also, he always had a smile on his face. He always you know, had a smile, even as a small child. And so it was that smile that I think helped him bridge that gap between being a person of color and those around him. Although the school at that time was filled with many immigrants, um, Jewish people, Irish people. So there was still that connection uh, of that community. That was who Cleveland was at that time. And Jack's high school football team, and of course, you know, here we are talking about the um, the early 1920s. They This was a, a time of growth for football in the country. It was a brutal, brutal sport with not a lot of padding and not a lot of head protection back then. But his high school football team was a juggernaut. Yeah, this is an interesting story that his high school football team played for the national high school championship. So they were they were so good that they actually played a team um, in what, the state of Washington for the national football high school championship. And what's important about that story as well is football was was huge in that blue collar town where where he played. But yet even there, there was no no one of color playing football. And so when Jack went there, he was honored by people of color. They had a special banquet for him because he wasn't going to the banquet with the other white kids. And right, because of segregation. Coaches. Yeah, there was a lot. There was still segregation going on. And there was, you know, this was a town, though, that had a, black, a strong black community. Um, and so they honored Jack. They had a little banquet in his honor. And then the next day during the game, uh, a little boy, this is recorded by a newspaper reporter who was at the time, a little boy ran over to Jack at halftime and, and threw him a piece of candy. And they said they could see a tear in Jack's eye. This little boy saw himself in Jack. We talk about representation now on TV and film, but there was no representation really of black athletes on the field. And so this boy was able to see himself playing football, saw something about Jack that inspired him, and he just wanted to give him that little piece of candy. And so even in high school, Jack understood at that point he was already representing more than just himself on that field. And that national high school um, championship, it it was kind of a a title that was in flux, even though the whole event was kind of in flux. But his senior year, they were also an extraordinary team. They could have played in something like a championship game, but he would have had to go to Texas to do it. And he was not invited to to be a part of that. And, And his entire team said, if Jack can't go, we're not going, which seems like a really extraordinary moment. Yeah, they had the opportunity to go to Texas to also play for for a national title. 
And because of the rules at that time, the black kids did not play with the white kids. They had a separate league. And so, yeah, Jack would not have been allowed to play, not have been allowed on the field. And in fact, there was some some talks, some newspaper column writers were using sort of terms that sort of evoked lynching yeah. and hanging and all these, you know, really derogatory and scary terms. And, and so Jack's team, they voted. They decided, well, we could all decide, say, who's going to go? Should we play for this national championship? We lost the year before. You know, maybe we can win this year. And they voted not to go to Texas because they didn't want to insult Jack by going to Texas and having him not play. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back and talking with Jonathan Gelber, author of The Idealist. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. We're talking about the life and legacy of Jack Trice this hour. Everyone in Iowa has heard his name. The stadium at Iowa State University is Jack Trice Stadium. He was the first black athlete to play for Iowa State College. And in 1923, during the second varsity college football game of his life, he was wounded on the field. He died of those injuries. The night before he died, he wrote an extraordinary letter, and a part of it said, the honor of my race, family, and self are at stake. Everyone is expecting me to do big things. I will. That letter has inspired so many over the years, and it also tells us a little bit about who this man was. With me is Dr. Jonathan Gelber. He is the author of The Idealist, Jack Trice and the Battle for a Forgotten Football Legacy. And we are going to talk about the movement that finally, after almost 25 years of trying, got the stadium at Iowa State University named for Jack Trice um, in a few minutes. But let's talk a little bit about his career at Iowa State. So he had this extraordinary high school career. A black man growing up in Ohio, going to college was not a given. He wanted to go to college. And um, he also fell in love and and got married right before he was to start college. How did he wind up at Iowa State University? So, yeah, Jack had intentions of going to university. So he actually was going to go to Case Western in Cleveland. And he wanted to do something in agriculture. He had known about George Washington Carver and Carver's great success and legacy in teaching Southern black farmers how to grow crops. And 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 of course, George Washington Carver was the first black student to attend Iowa State University. Yes. And not only was he a student, he was an athletic trainer. So he had a connection to sports and football as well. And Jack's coach also was not necessarily going to continue coaching. And then all of a sudden he was offered a job at Iowa state. And part of the, the job was that he was not only going to coach Iowa state, 
a football team, but he was going to bring star players with him because they had known that the, these students at East Tech were some of the best in the nation. So his best friend and his brother were on the team, and they were going to go to Notre Dame and play for Newt Rockney, who's also a Hall of Fame football legend. And he got those two to come with him to Iowa State, and with those two on board, he tried to get a third person, and he unfortunately wanted to stay locally, but the fourth person was Jack. And so the coach brought these players over to Iowa State with him to Ames. So they all left the big metropolitan Cleveland together to move to the small town of Ames, Iowa. And of course, even though he was invited to play football at Iowa State, things were different then. That didn't mean that he was on a full ride scholarship or something like that. He still had to pay for his education. And in fact, his mother we believe, mortgaged her house to pay for his college education, right? Yeah, there's a lot of parallels um, when you think about, you know, Jack's life, you know, almost 100 years ago. So he he was raised by a single mom. His father died when he was young. He wanted to attend college. Um, and so he saw attending college as a way of, of advancing his ability to help others. And, and football provided that avenue for him. So, it's you know, a lot of students today see football as a way to get an education. Yeah. And so that allowed him to go to Iowa State. But as you mentioned, there were no football scholarships at the time. And so he had to work. So he had two jobs, it sounds like, um, mostly maintenance and janitorial work. Um, one at the Masonic building where he lived. So he, as a person of color, could not live on campus. So many of the students lived in downtown Ames in the small spaces above all the storefronts. But there was always a second floor used for offices and maybe physician or dentist's office. Many of them turned them into to houses for students of color. And so Jack found a room in the, the Mason building. And so he worked there and he also worked at the school, at the school gym. He had his own key to the gym and sometimes he would sneak in at night and go swimming and maybe bring his girlfriend for, for a late night dip. So, you know, he was, he was a young kid and it's, it's all these things that you read about and you think this is the 1920s and this, that could happen today. And it's very interesting just to hear Jack's story as a person and see how many connections there are to people today over 100 years later. A lot, and I'm I'm a graduate of Iowa State University, and a lot of us celebrate the fact that George Washington Carver was the first black student and, and that we have the stadium named for Jack Trice and celebrate some of the progressive things about our legacy. But I think it's important, and you do make it very clear, life was really hard for people of color in Ames, Iowa in the 1920s. Yeah, I mean, even then, you know, there were there were segregations. Um, it, there was a lot of unwritten rules about where you could eat, um, and sometimes Jack would be invited to go with his teammates to to have dinner or something, and and he knew that it would just be an awkward situation if he went, so he would often decline them and and go eat by himself, you know, at at a different diner late at night. And there are other students there too who you know experienced many of these things. And he actually, in his second year, he was able to join a black fraternity, the first black fraternity at Iowa State. And it was many members of that fraternity that went on to do big things like become presidents of universities, found the American Bar Association. So I think Jack was able to find people similar to him and experience what it was to be a black man in Ames and at a university by joining the black fraternity in his sophomore year. And, of course, the Greek system at Iowa State University was growing then, but the black fraternity and the black sorority could not have a house as the other fraternities and sororities did. There was definitely a, a double standard um, in every sense, all over town in, and at the university and in so many ways. Um, I, I want to talk about 
this football game. His first season, he couldn't pay, play varsity. His second season, he was on the varsity squad. He, they had a game against Simpson College, which was considered to be something of a scrimmage because Simpson College wasn't the the same caliber as Iowa State University. So this second game, he considered this second game to be the first real college game of his life. And he writes that in that extraordinary letter that he wrote the night before that game. Uh, tell me what was at stake with this game? Yeah, I mean, as you, as you mentioned, it was the first real college game of his life. And, and that was also because the first year's as a freshman, you couldn't play varsity. So even though his team was brought in to be the stars in the next generation, they had to wait a year. Um, and so they waited that year. That first game that you mentioned wasn't really a, a competitive game. So then the next game was against the University of Minnesota. And the University of Minnesota was a well-known football team. And this is a big powerhouse team. And so it was a big game. And Jack was a star player. And, you know, unfortunately during the game, first he hurt his shoulder. And he couldn't come out because in those days, if you came out in the first half, you couldn't go back into the set until the second half. So he played through pain and he was known as a blocker. So he would make the holes for the quarterback or the other players to run through. That was his job. He could, he did score some touchdowns, but mostly he was known as a big blocker. In fact, he was so strong that he would train with one of the assistant coaches who played semi-professional football on the side because he was just as strong as him and could you know, go pound for pound with him on the line. And so at one point, Jack did what's called a rolling block. So you kind of go down and, and take someone with you. But when he hit the ground, he was trampled by several players. And the, that's the real question of, well, why was he trampled? What happened? Because that's not, it's not a normal thing. I mean, it is a very violent sport. Even in those days, you had very minimal equipment. You played both offense and defense, but you know, typically you weren't trampled. And in this case, it was trampled. His abdomen was, was injured. And so the question is, why was he targeted? And we certainly know that everybody knew that there was a high racial tension at that time. The Ku Klux Klan was rising in prominence. They were running a candidate for mayor in St. Paul. They had a, a float in the, the Minnesota University's parade. So, you know, the, the KKK and, and racist groups were on the rise and, and they were well known. So, you know, having a black man on the field certainly you know, brought attention to him. And then beyond his color of his skin, he was a star football player. I mean, he was very integral to that team. So there's always this question of was he targeted because of his race? And I, I think that's part of it. But I think it was also because he was a star athlete. So I think those factors both played together into what happened and why he was trampled. This letter that he wrote the night before that game that was immortalized on a plaque at Iowa State University that really is the thing that kept his story alive for so long. He wrote that letter because of segregation. He wrote that letter because he was alone in his hotel room because he wasn't allowed to eat with the rest of the team. Yeah, I mean, Jack had to stay at a separate hotel, the Curtis Hotel, and we know that because of the stationery uh, is what he wrote it on. He wrote it on the hotel stationery, that letter. And even his teammates, you know, kind of looked around at one point when they're eating and, and asked, where's Jack? I mean, why isn't Jack here with us? And in fact, you know, his best friend from high school um, they was named Johnny Bem, and Johnny and Jack would always room together. They would ride trains together. You know, they're best friends, and yet when they come to Minnesota, Jack can't stay with them. So that was certainly, you know, not shocking to them uh, because obviously they, they had lived in the 1920s, but right. they were used to Jack being with them. And, and now they come to Minnesota and Jack's ripped away from them and put into a separate hotel. It took 
several days for Jack to die of his injuries at the game. He was taken back to Ames and went to the hospital. And there, the students at Iowa State University mourned him. There was a, a large funeral on campus, on central campus. And, and there, uh, he was honored in his time after his death. And there was a collection taken up for his mother. I mentioned earlier that we believe that his mother had to mortgage her home um, to pay for his college. His wife, who was living in Ames and studying home economics, left school and went to live with Jack Trice's mother after Jack's death. I, I want to jump ahead that plaque that was put on campus because of, of the feeling of the students at the time when he died in the 1920s, that endured, stayed there, got a little dusty over time. In the 1970s, it, it was really rediscovered in, in many ways. And you mentioned earlier that there was an academic tutor who it caught his attention. He decided to do a little research about Jack Trice. And then there was an English class that did a deep dive. Tell me uh, about that discovery and the movement that grew out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the English teacher was, was Charles Son, and his friend was the academic tutor um, that had found this plaque about Jack and, and looked into it. And there had been another student named Tom who became an Iowa State journalism professor who had written a short article also on Jack, but it never went anywhere in the 1950s. And so there was some stuff at the library. There was a small Jack Trice collection, but the majority of that grew when the students decided they were going to do it, like you mentioned, a deep dive. And so they contacted the athletic director at the time, who was a teammate of Jack and recorded interviews. They actually sent letters and contacted people in his hometown of Hiram to really know how Jack was. And, and it's kind of funny because this is the time when the new Iowa State Stadium was being built. And they thought after all the research they did, they said, you know what, you know, let's try and you know get the stadium named after him. But even there was a black you know, student in the class and he's like, they're never going to name the stadium after a black kid. And so the, Charles Son was sort of a hippie from the 1960s. He you know, was always sort of a revolutionary. And he said, okay, well, let's this case to the students, and they made a scrapbook, the Jack Trice scrapbook, which was a collection of all the newspaper articles and some of the interviews they had. We get for a dollar to to raise money for a Jack Trice scholarship and to create awareness of Jack Trice, and and it really caught on, and and soon the students and the student government in particular took up the mantle of trying to get the stadium named for Jack, and they went all the way to the Board of Regents to try and get the stadium named for him, and uh, they failed. Over 70% of students on campus in a poll supported this. The administration did not support this idea. And um, they said that faculty did not support it, although the student newspaper checked into it and faculty hadn't been asked, or at least the majority of faculty hadn't been asked. And the people who had been asked, three out of four, said that they were in support of naming the stadium. Um, they were afraid that, that alumni of the university couldn't support this. Yeah, I mean, this the second half of the book really focuses on the fight to get the stadium named for Jack, and I think it's important to highlight that as well, besides, as I mentioned, his life being so important, but even the fight to get the stadium named after him, because it's almost taken for granted now that Iowa State has the stadium named for Jack Trice. He has, you know, symbolism all throughout the university and the athletic teams. And, and, and is, we'll be know, spending the next year marking the centennial of his death. 
Exactly. And so, you know, and he was and still is the only African-American to have a major college football stadium named after him. And in all places, Ames, Iowa, one wouldn't expect that. But it, it didn't come out so so easily that they were able to, to name the stadium for him. It took almost 25 years. And so, as you mentioned, first they went to the regents and the regents voted it down because they thought the alumni would not want a stadium named for an African-American or certainly just a single football player. They wanted to name it Cyclone Stadium. They wanted a very generic name to include everybody, not to single out one African-American student uh, who had sacrificed himself and, and died playing you know, football. And then again, in the 1980s, the students tried again. And this is more of a hijinks era. They were having flyovers with banners. They put a big billboard outside of the town that said, welcome to Ames home of Jack Trice Stadium, but of course it wasn't, but you know, it is today. Um, so they did a lot of things. They even you know, helped with a, uh, get a newspaper columnist, Don Call, who founded the Ragbri Ride. And yeah. he was a well-known satirical newspaper columnist, and he took up the fight naming things for Jack. And he would often write articles about, you know, why are we focusing on you know, these other people from Notre Dame and all these other people when we have a hero among ourselves and, and we should be naming the stadium for Jack. And so, you know, there was, it was a fight and, and it was not until 1990s that they actually got the stadium named for Jack Trice. 1997. And um, as you write about in detail in the book, the, there were a lot of factors that finally led to the university making that decision and doing the right thing and naming the stadium after Jack Trice. But it was largely in response to a group of students of color on campus who were involved in a movement to get the name of Cat Hall changed. That was named after Carrie Chapman Cat, who was uh, an early suffragist. And she also had some very racist writings um, and speeches that she had given. And so the students wanted to name the, the or change the name of Cat Hall. The administration finally named the stadium, Jack Trice Stadium, as in many ways um, a parley with the students of color on campus. It's, it's a fascinating, fascinating story. And we only have about a, a minute left. Uh, Jonathan, I mean, I, I think that the, there are so many takeaways from this, but what do you want people to take away from reading your book? Yeah, I think you know the the life of Jack and what he represented. I think is the most important thing because for, for some reason that letter inspires people of all walks of life. You know, whether as I mentioned, you're an athlete on the field, or an athletic director, or a coach, or an executive, or even just a, a person who who feels that stories should be told of marginalized people. I think it's important to understand that these are are people, and Jack was a person. And I think for some reason, his life touches upon people and his vulnerability touches upon people. And so I think it's important to recognize that these stories do need to be told and don't take them for granted. For instance, that the stadium is named for Jack because it wasn't so easy. It's not a Hollywood story that just seems to go you know, easily from one point to another. When you look back, you know, these, these decisions were the right decision. But there are all hard way. It's a hard decision to make sometimes, when, well, even if they are the right decision in retrospect. Dr. Jonathan Gelber, thank you so much for telling this story. The book is The Idealist, Jack Trice and the Battle for a Forgotten Football Legacy. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest and a light Q&A. 
But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Last week, IPR's Studio One staff told us about their favorite albums of 2022. Bob Doerr shared his favorite blues releases, and Karen Impola made a list of folk music albums that should not be overlooked. You can find all of those lists at iowapublicradio.org. Today, IPR's Barney Sherman is here with his list of best classical music releases of 2022. Barney is a classical music host. Heard week Day and Sunday afternoons on IPR Classical. Barney, hello. Hi, Charity. How are you? I am wonderful. Thank you so much for being here today. And uh, looking at your list, you have a lot of Iowa artists on your list. Uh, what are your takeaways from 2022? Well, instead of a best of the year list, I thought I would focus on Iowa because, hey, that's what we're all about. We're here because Iowa has so many classical music lovers, so many people involved in classical music, although I do have one non-Iowa ringer later on. We'll get to that. (laughs) But my first piece on the list brings together three Iowa gems. One is the Southeast Iowa Symphony. It's a community orchestra that plays each concert in Burlington, Mount Pleasant, and Ottumwa. And its conductor, and with Bob McConnell's conductor, it is an adventurous group. It commissions a lot of new music. So our example is written by, well, another Iowa gem, the composer Linda Robbins Coleman, one of the founders of the Iowa Composers Forum, getting some nice recognition now. And the piece is called Diversions, and it's written for our Iowa gem number three, the Southeast Iowa Symphony's flute soloist, Rose Bishop. Well, Rose released a live recording of the premiere. It's on her album, Diversions. That's the name of the piece. And it also includes five other new pieces for flute. So here's a bit of the Linda Robbins Coleman Diversions, the second movement played by Rose Bishop. Just a taste of diversions for one soloist, three flutes, and orchestra from the album Diversions by Rose Bishop performing with the Southeast Iowa Symphony Orchestra. That was beautiful, Barney. What's next on your list? 
Well, a composer from Dubuque, Michael Gilbertson, who comes home every summer to raise funds for his alma mater, the Northeast Iowa School of Music, and I've known him as a kind young man who brings festival musicians to IPR in Cedar Falls to perform. But the word has gotten out on Michael. He's been honored by the Pulitzer Prize Committee and the American Academy of Arts and Letters. And this release this year reminded me of why, which is that his music is profound. The album is called Born, a title piece, the setting of a poem by a Polish Nobel laureate. But I'm going to choose a sample from the other piece, which is called Returning. It's a new text about two friends kept apart by circumstances. It's so timely. Uh, Here's a sample from its first half, which is called What Knits Us. It's sung by The Crossing, conducted by Donald Nally. a little bit of Returnings Part 1, What Knits Us from the album Born by Michael Gilbertson. And um, that was also really, really stunning, Barney. What, What do you have in store for us next? We have so many great pianists in Iowa. So to stand for them, this next pick is by Orion Weiss, who grew up in Iowa City. He's making a series of recordings that unite a big repertory into a large theme, and it's ambitious. I wondered if it would work, and it does. This year's release is the second in the series, and it's called Arc, by the way. Uh, So here's a sample, Orion playing the opening of Ravel's Tombeau de Couperin. Thank you. 
That is pianist Orion Weiss from his album Arc 2. A little bit of Ravel there. What is next on your list, Barney? Well, my non-Iowa ringer. I try to avoid <laughs> politics on my show. It's a feature of classical radio, but sometimes politics find you. And this year they certainly found classical music, yeah. well, hardly for the first time. But when Putin unleashed his forces on Ukraine, the classical music field really had to think about how to respond. And I felt the responses have been thoughtful. I wanted an example. So I chose an EP called Music for Ukraine for two reasons. The first is that all the proceeds go to a charity supporting Ukrainian refugees. And the second is the choice of composers shows how Ukraine has a rich history and that it's a pluralist, diverse place. One of the composers is Jewish, like Ukraine's president. Another, Valentin Silvestro, sort of my composer of the year, is 85 years old. He was in Kiev when the uh, invasion started. The next month, he and his daughter and granddaughter escaped to Poland. He's been a strong advocate since then as a composer. And, well, here's one result. His, one of his melodies of the moment, as he calls it, is played by Daniel Hope and Alexei Botnyvov. That is Melodies of the Moments, Opus 145, a musical moment from the EP Music for Ukraine. What's next on your list, Barney? A refugee from another era. Hans Gall was a leading composer in Germany who had to flee the Nazis. He found refuge in Edinburgh, and he lived to the age of 97. The lovely thing is that it was long enough for him to see his music come back into fashion. Well, this album showcases some of his chamber music and some of the amazing talent we have at the University of Iowa. This is a sample, a trio, a pastoral for oboe, violin, and viola. Courtney Miller on oboe, Scott Conklin on violin, Christine Rutledge, recorded at Voxman Music Building. Thank you. 
That's Hans Gall's trio for oboe, violin, and viola, pastoral, performed by University of Iowa musicians and recorded at Voxman Hall at the University of Iowa. Two more picks left. Barney, what's next? Well, Iowa is a great state in the world of choral music, and the Ona Voce's Choral Ensemble of Mason City, led by Dennis Lee, it's a perfect representative. They have a new CD out called Prairie Christmas. I only noticed the wordplay just now. And uh, Prairie Christmas features Midwestern and Iowa composers. It's lovely. So I chose a track by Eric Barnum, who's the director of choral activities at Drake University in Des Moines. It's called What Is This Light? little bit of What Is This Light from the album Prairie Christmas by Una Voce's Choral Ensemble of Mason City. And Barney, before we get to your final pick of the day, I just want to take a moment and say thank you so much for putting this list together. Thank you, Charity. It's really been fun talking to you, and I really appreciate it. Well, it's always wonderful to have you on the show, and you always introduce us to such beautiful, beautiful things. So what, what is your final pick of the day? Well, it's another CD uh, meant to help something to address a, a challenge of our time that answers the question, totally fair question of, yeah, but how does this art actually help? It's called Five Minutes for Earth. It's by an American harpist I really admire named Yolanda Condonassis. And here's the thing. All the proceeds go to climate nonprofits. Well, she asked favorite composers to write short pieces. One of them is a Cedar Rapids-born composer, Michael Doherty. He called his piece, Hear the Dust Blow.
That's Hear the Dust Blow from the album Five Minutes for Earth by harpist Yolanda Condonassis, Barney Sherman's final pick of the day, IPR's classical music host Barney Sherman. This is Talk of Iowa. <laughs>